Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump's visit to the G20 provided a vivid dose of Trumpian circuses. The president chuckled it up with authoritarians, dissed the allies, and ended up in North Korea. But the U.S. approach to North Korea and Iran on nonproliferation issues bumps into some hard realities about deterrence that should shape events as they unfold. The International Atomic Energy Agency reported today that Iran has surpassed the limit on the uranium supply permitted under the 2015 nuclear agreement. With me is John Mersheimer, professor of political science at the University of Chicago. His new piece in the New York Times is Iran is rushing to build a nuclear weapon and Trump can't stop it. The White House strategy of maximum pressure is backfiring in the most dangerous possible way. And John Mersheimer, good to see you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Do they let you write the uh, titles to your pieces in the New York Times? No. That's the one thing you have no control over. You see it when the newspaper appears. Yeah, that's a little bit of a fetching one. Uh, explain your argument about Iran and why, they're, why they'd be better off pursuing a nuclear weapon here. Well, nuclear weapons are the ultimate deterrent. If a country has nuclear weapons, it's highly unlikely that another country will threaten its survival or threaten even to attack it. Uh, for fear that the country will use those nuclear weapons. Uh, so if you have a situation where Iran has nuclear weapons, it, it is highly unlikely that the United States and Israel would be threatening to attack Iran. And furthermore, a lot of people think that Iran cannot shut down uh, the flow of oil in the Persian Gulf with simply conventional weapons. I think that's basically true. I think they can slow it down, but they can't stop it. But if Iran had nuclear weapons and used a few nuclear weapons, it could easily shut down the flow of oil in the Persian Gulf. All of this is a way of saying that an Iran that has nuclear weapons is much safer than an Iran that does not have nuclear weapons. And for anybody who has any doubt about that, all you have to do is look at the difference between North Korea and Iran. And North Korea is getting um, all the love from President Trump. Right, because President Trump understands that attacking North Korea, which is armed with nuclear weapons, would be a remarkably foolish idea because North Korea would use those nuclear weapons in all likelihood if its survival was threatened against South Korea where there are many thousands of Americans, and against Japan. And both Japan and South Korea are our allies. So he is, President Trump, remarkably cautious when it comes to South uh, to North Korea. Now, Iran seems to have taken a different uh, path here with the nuclear deal. And a, a lot of people, you know, I have Ahmed Sadri on from Lake Forest College, and he argues that, well, what Iran wants is nuclear latency. This would be the best thing uh, from the Iranian point of view, because then if uh, but if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, there are people in Saudi Arabia who will want a nuclear weapon instantly. There's other people in the region who will want a nuclear weapon. And Iran will lose its conventional advantage that it has with uh, the size of its population, three times the size of Saudi Arabia. They're um, They've got some unconventional means that they could use that would be diminished if the if it just became a nuclear standoff. Uh, is it was the nuclear latency idea that Iran had a flawed strategy, or was that or was that really the best for them? Well, just to be clear for the listeners, nuclear latency is a situation 
where a country has a very sophisticated nuclear enrichment or nuclear reprocessing program where it then has the capability to easily get nuclear weapons. In effect, you're on the one-yard line. Now, I think there's no question that up until the time of the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran, they were pursuing latency. They were not pursuing a bomb before 2015. They wanted just to have the capability to very quickly develop a bomb if necessary. But I think the situation has fundamentally changed now. The United States has basically declared war on Iran. It's not war in the sense that we're shooting at each other, but it's economic warfare. And what we're trying to do is bring the Iranians to their knees. We're trying to inflict massive punishment and massive pain on them with economic sanctions. And we are in a very important way threatening their survival. And in a situation like that, from Iran's point of view, certainly not from America's point of view, but from Iran's point of view, having nuclear weapons would go a long way toward improving their strategic situation. Why not – couldn't Iran just engage the United States in talks that go nowhere and kill a lot of time? North Korea is doing a beautiful job of it and the Iranians certainly have that skill. Well, if they could get President Trump to take the sanctions off, they might consider that. But he has no intention of taking the sanctions off because he has now committed himself to punishing Iran to the point where it throws up its hands and surrenders to the demands of the United States. I mean, once President Trump last May, this is May 2018, pulled out of the nuclear deal, he really had no choice but to bet that he could get uh, Iran to give up to American pressure. So he's committed to that policy. And the Iranians, of course, they're going to resist that. They're not going to cave. So we're in an escalatory spiral at this point in time between the two sides. Explain why Iran is not going to cave. Why, why don't they um, just submit themselves for talks and some kind of capitulation here? Well, the first reason is nationalism. We know from the historical record that it's very clear when a country tries to inflict massive pain on an adversary through strategic bombing, through sanctions, through sieges, the, the end result is that the people don't rise up. They don't rise up and tell the leader to sue for peace. In a sense, they rally around the flag. So the United States bombed Japan from March 1945 to August 1945, killing approximately a million civilians. But the Japanese government did not give in until the very end, and I think it was mainly due to other factors at the end. So you can inflict punishment on a country – and it just doesn't do much good. And the second reason is that it's not clear that if the Iranians concede to us this time that we won't think we can do this again to them down the road because it succeeded once. So given the danger of a bad precedent, they have a powerful interest not to let us push them around. 
I'm talking with John Mersheimer from the University of Chicago. His piece in the New York Times is Iran is rushing to build a nuclear weapon and Trump can't stop it. And just to go over the nationalism piece again, there was another piece in the New York Times from somebody who studies the National Guard who described how the National Guard have changed its media strategy to take advantage of nationalism and is building its popularity through a, a media campaign that just beats on nationalism and isn't all about religion. Right, exactly. And just two other examples that highlight this. In World War II, when the Soviet Union was attacked by Nazi Germany, uh, the Soviets did not rely on communist ideology to rally the troops. They relied on nationalism. The second example involves China today. China is a communist state, but communism really matters very little for mobilizing the Chinese people. Instead, and there's a rich literature on this, the Chinese are using nationalism to rally people around the flag. Do you put any stock in the idea that this is religiously uh, unethical in Iran to have a nuclear weapon and that uh, the supreme leader there has ruled and says there there is a fatwa against uh, a nuclear weapon because it would kill too many civilians and that is is un-Islamic? Well, I I think uh, that there are probably some people who believe that. And I think that there was a time when the strategic imperative for acquiring nuclear weapons was not strong enough uh, so that you could use those religious sorts of arguments as a justification for not getting nuclear weapons. But the situation has changed fundamentally here. The sanctions that we had on Iran before 2015 were really significant. We were profoundly affecting their economy. We were wrecking their economy then. The sanctions that President Trump has now reinstated since May 2018 are even more extreme. So we are inflicting massive punishment on the Iranians, and they have to figure out some way to get out of this horrible situation and to deal with a highly aggressive United States of America. And I would make the argument that what they are likely to do is they're likely to go down the nuclear road. What about their expertise in dodging sanctions? They seem quite advanced at it. The Europeans seem to want to help Iran stay in the nuclear deal. They have made operational their exchange mechanism, which um, allows people to do business with Iran while avoiding the U.S. Treasury Department. Is that uh, a realistic alternative for Iran? No. Uh, It's quite clear that uh, even though virtually every other country in the world agrees with us, uh, uh, disagrees with us on the whole matter of Iran and the Europeans and the Chinese and the Russians and the Indians would like to trade with Iran, uh, it's almost impossible to do that because the United States is economically so powerful and these secondary sanctions that we have where we put sanctions on businesses, not the government of France or Britain, but businesses in those countries spooks them to the point where they just simply won't trade with Iran because they're afraid that they'll get you know billion-dollar fines from the United States. Do you understand what President Trump's bottom line here is with Iran? Because he and his administration have said different things. Lately, he's been saying, we can't let Iran have a nuclear weapon. But 
previously his secretary of state made a laundry list of things that Iran must do, which it, there were 12 of them, and he essentially changed their whole foreign policy and uh, changed several other missile systems and defense systems in addition to their nuclear policy. Do, do you know what the U.S.'s bottom line is? Well, the U.S.'s bottom line is basically to threaten uh, the sovereignty of Iran. We're not only demanding, as you point out, that they completely give up their nuclear program. This is because we don't want them to have latency, much less a nuclear weapon. We want them to give up their nuclear program, hook, line, and sinker. And as you point out, we want them to fundamentally alter how they deal with the rest of the world. This is challenging their sovereignty. And when you make these kinds of demands, you can only – one can only say that these people are really not interested in uh, working with the Iranians to craft a new deal. What they're interested in doing is causing re regime change. Uh, so do you think the Trump administration – I mean it's constantly saying it wants to have a negotiation with Iran and sometimes Donald Trump says, well, it's a uh, – I'll negotiate unconditionally. Uh, I'll, I'll do that unconditionally. Does that have any meaning? Anybody who negotiates with the United States and gives up weapons of mass destruction that they have is a fool. Uh, Kim Jong-un is not going to give up his nuclear weapons. The United States runs around the world. Uh, trying to do regime change. And it's quite clear that North Korea, uh, Iran, and other countries of that sort are at the top of the list. Why would Kim Jong-un give up his nuclear weapons? You remember Colonel Gaddafi was told that if he gave up his WMD programs, the United States would leave him alone. That's what we said explicitly. He gave up his WMD programs, and then the United States helped bury him six feet under the ground. Right? He was a fool. Uh, so the Iranians uh, would be remarkably foolish, in my opinion, to trust anything the United States says and certainly anything Donald Trump says. They negotiated the 2015 deal in good faith. By all accounts, they were sticking to the deal and then Trump walked away from it. How can you trust Trump? When you hear about what's happening with North Korea and we're going to re-enter negotiations with North Korea, um, the same questionable bottom line appears what we want from North Korea. There is a story in the Times today that says, well, we're going – the Trump administration is trying to digest leaving them with a few nuclear weapons and just get them to stop enriching uranium and put a freeze on their program and um, and try to sell that as an achievement. Is uh, there's a lot of people who disagree that that's what's happening, but it sounds like they're they're kind of contemplating that idea. I think that they're beginning to face up to reality on North Korea. I think that they understand that North Korea has no intention of getting rid of its nuclear weapons. I mean, North Korea is physically located in a bad neighborhood. It has China, Japan, and Russia in that neighborhood. It's disappeared from the map on numerous occasions. The United States has its gun sights on North Korea, and they have nuclear weapons, which are the ultimate deterrent. It would be foolish in the extreme to give those weapons up. And I think that's now beginning to dawn on the American policymakers. So the question is, where do you go from there? And I think the, the least bad alternative is to see if you can freeze what they have in place. It's interesting to look at this from the North Korean perspective. They've uh, done a lot of talking and they've given up nothing so far and they've 
gotten better relations, not with the United States necessarily, but with South Korea, with with China. They, they've done pretty well regionally in their reputation is is better. They've played their hand very well. Uh, and of course, the United States uh, has not played its hand well at all. Uh, but the other, uh, North Korea actually has two advantages, one which we talked about, uh, two advantages over Iran. One which we talked about is that North Korea has nuclear weapons. But the second is that North Korea has a protector and the protector is China. China thinks that North Korea is of tremendous strategic importance. You want to remember that the Chinese came into the Korean War in the fall of 1950 when we crossed the 38th parallel and looked like we were going to conquer North Korea. The Chinese said that's unacceptable. So the Chinese really limit what we can do to North Korea and plus they have nuclear weapons. Iran has no benefactor. It has no China equivalent and it has no nuclear weapons and we have our gun sights on Iran. So they're in big trouble. And as I say, I think the best alternative for them is to acquire a nuclear deterrent. It's not in America's interest. I want to be very clear on that. I'm not advocating that that's good for us. It's not. It would be much better if only one country in the world had nuclear weapons, the United States. It would be better if the United States uh, did not pursue a policy that pushed them in that direction. That's exactly right. When you run around the world pursuing regime change, this is what you're going to get. I noticed your um, uh, writing partner and colleague sometimes, Stephen Walt, uh, was, uh, wrote a piece in Foreign Policy where he encouraged the president to absolutely reverse himself. And there's a letter from a bunch of Middle East academics saying the same thing. You should just reverse yourself, implement the 2015 agreement, uh, terminate the sanctions, uh, enter into negotiations. And, and, and Stephen Walt did it in a funny way. He said, you are absolutely the best president in the world at reversing yourself, and you are absolutely the best president in the world at losing members of your administration, and there's a couple you could lose here in Pompeo and Bolton that you would uh, certainly benefit from. In addition to being smart, Steve is very clever as well. Uh, I would just say, and I say this at the end of the New York Times op-ed, that that would be a good idea. But the problem is that he would alienate his base. Trump's base is filled with hardcore right-wingers and hawks who are pushing him to confront Iran. And what they want as Iran gets tougher is for Trump to get tougher. So they will not tolerate Trump backing off and Effect doing in effect doing a 180 degree turn here. So I don't think that's going to happen, which is why I think this is going to ratchet up. And the end result is that they will end up with nuclear weapons. I'm talking with John Mersheimer, professor of political science at the University of Chicago. His new piece in the New York Times today is Iran is rushing to build a nuclear weapon and Trump can't stop it. We'll be back with more after the break and we'll talk about repairing relations with the allies. I'm Jerome McDonnell and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and we're talking about President Trump and the Trump administration's policy with Iran and North Korea and abroad in generally with John Mersheimer from the University of Chicago. And I'm going to play a clip now from the Democratic debates the other night where they taught where the candidates were asked about repairing relations with allies and then get John's reaction. I'll start with Ms. Williamson. Well, one of my first phone calls would be to call the European leaders and say, we're back, because I totally Thank understand you. how important it is that the United States be part of the Western okay. alliance. I want, and- I'm trying to get one, one or two words here. It's, I, I, I hear you. Governor Hickenlooper. You know, I talk about constant engagement, and I think <laughs> the, first person, the first country I would go to, yeah. and I understand they've been cheating and, yeah. and stealing intellectual property, would be China, because okay. if we're going to do deal with public health pandemics, if we're going to do with all the challenges of the globe, we've got to have relationships with everyone. Mr. Yang, we're trying to squeeze in a couple more things before we go to another break. Mr. Yang. China, we need to cooperate with them on climate change, AI, and other uh, issues. North Korea. Thanks for the quickness. Mayor Buttigieg. We have no idea which of our most important allies he will have pissed off worse between now and then. What we know is that our relationship with the entire world needs to change. And it starts by modeling American values at home. Okay, Mr. Vice President, I'm trying to be quick. We know NATO will fall apart if he's elected four more years. There's a single most consequential alliance in the history of the United States. Senator Sanders. It's not one country. I think it is rebuilding trust in the United Nations and understand that we can solve conflicts without war but with diplomacy. Senator Harris. All the members of the NATO alliance. Senator Gillibrand. President Trump is hell-bent on starting a war with Iran. My first act will be to engage Iran to stabilize the Middle East and make sure we do not start an unwanted, never-ending war. Senator Bennett, quickly. Our European allies and every Latin American country that's willing to have a conversation about how to deal with the refugee crisis. And Congressman Swalwell. My first act in foreign policy, we're breaking up with Russia and making up with NATO. There it is. There's the Democrats, uh, 10 of them anyways, ideas about where to go first with foreign policy. John, who's right? Well, it's hard to say uh, because there's so <laughs> many so many relationships around the world that need to be repaired. Uh, my view is that it's very important, maybe most important, that we repair our relations with our allies in East Asia, well, all for the purposes of containing China. Uh, second, I think it's very important that we repair our relations with NATO uh, or our European allies. I was in Europe last week and it's quite clear that uh, President Trump has gone a long way to uh, erode the trust between the two sides explain of the Atlantic the, Ocean. Explain what you were doing in Europe and how you, how you got deep into that. Well, I uh, was at the annual meeting of the European Council on Foreign Relations in Lisbon during the first part of the week. And then in the second part of the week, I was at the annual meeting of the German Marshall Fund, where I actually uh, engaged in a debate that was sponsored by Intelligence Squared. And uh, what you find out very quickly talking to people in Europe is that, number one, they're remarkably pro-American – But number two, they are remarkably disenchanted with the Trump administration and they worry greatly that the transatlantic relationship is falling apart and doesn't have much of a future uh, in large part because of American policies. They're especially bothered by the fact that President Trump put tariffs on countries like Germany. Uh, which view themselves as long-standing allies uh, that can be trusted but don't seem to be trusted. So one of your debates was about can the transatlantic alliance be saved? Yes. Uh, it, 
the Intelligence Squared debate that I referenced was on the question of whether or not the transatlantic relationship is irreparably damaged. And I argued that it's not irreparably damaged. Uh, I argued that there is no question that President Trump has done some damage. But it was in the interests of the Americans and the interest in the interest of the Europeans to keep the transatlantic relationship alive and functioning in quite efficient ways. And therefore, it would not go away. But it's a hard argument to make in large part because people on the other side automatically go to President Trump and his policies and talk about them. And it's hard to defend President Trump's policies. So that's an excellent device uh, in a debate for going after people on my side. Now, explain some of the nuances of repairing relations in Asia, which you prioritized. Well, it's very clear that almost all of our allies in East Asia are caught between a rock and a hard place. Now, what do I mean? What I mean is that economically, they have extensive ties with China and they have very powerful incentives to continue to trade with China. On the other hand, the Americans provide security for them, and they have powerful incentives to stay very close to the United States so that the American security umbrella remains over their head and they stay safe. So the question they face is, do they privilege economics or do they privilege um, strategic concerns? Now, what the Trump administration is doing is it's beating up a lot of our allies on economic issues. It's beating up on the Japanese. It's beating them up, uh, beating up the South Koreans. And this is just reinforcing their tendency to do more and more economic dealings with the Chinese. And on the strategic side, people are beginning to say it's not clear that you can rely on President Trump or rely on the United States anymore because nobody knows from day to day exactly what American policy is. And maybe he's an isolationist. So what we're doing is we're not losing those allies, but we're not doing a really good job of cementing a close relationship with them, which is very important given the looming competition between China and the United States. And we certainly had a pretty vivid example of that at the G20 with uh, Japan and President Trump questioning whether Japan would come to the aid of the United States. That was pretty wild. Yes. Uh, and uh, this does nothing to, uh, uh, to reinforce the credibility of the American commitment to Japan, which is of great importance. And by the way, it's great of great importance for nuclear proliferation issues. Japan does not have nuclear weapons. It feels like it is a threatened state in the face of a rising China. And it's beginning to wonder whether the United States will be there with its nuclear deterrent should Japan get into trouble. And when President Trump behaves like that and treats the Japanese as if they didn't matter or they were enemies of the United States. It gives the Japanese very powerful incentives to think about getting their own nuclear weapons to protect themselves, which is not in America's interest. Uh, we did hear about trusting Trump in the debate the other night from the Democrats. And this is Michael Bennett from Colorado talking about the similar issue in a different place. We've got to restore the relationships that he's destroyed with our allies, not just in Europe. He flew to the G20 last night and attacked Japan, Germany and a third ally of ours without saying anything about North Korea or Russia. 
And when you've got a situation where you have a president who says something happened in the Straits of Hormuz and the whole world doesn't know whether to believe it or not, that is a huge problem when it comes to the national security of the United States of America. There's Michael Bennett catching applause on a foreign policy issue at a debate. That's kind of a smart move. It's hard to disagree with him except for the fact that I don't think President Trump has destroyed our alliance systems uh, in Europe and in Asia. There's no question that he's done some serious damage and that if he is reelected for four more years and and if he continues to behave uh, in those four years the way he's behaved so far, uh, those alliances will be hurt even more. But the the alliances remain uh, firmly intact at this point. But that's not to take away from the basic thrust of what the senator said. Do you think foreign policy will get more uh, traction as the presidential campaign rolls on? It traditionally, people say it, foreign policy never really plays an issue in the in the presidential uh, presidential elections. But uh, this time, it could be different. I don't think so. Uh, And I think that's especially true if the economy goes south. I mean, I think Trump's future depends in large part on the economy. Uh, And if things really slow down or we had a recession in 2020, it would cause major problems for him. If that doesn't happen and the economy is rolling along, then foreign policy will get quite a bit of attention. But it will never be as important to Americans as domestic political issues. And that's largely because the United States is the most secure great power in the history of the world, despite all the rhetoric coming out of Washington. Does the uh, United States have to fix things up with China in the trade talks and then the economics? I mean, we're seeing the markets go up today, just, you know, the rumor that they're going to sit down together again. If the U.S. and China can make that fly, that helps the economy and helps his campaign. Well, I think that for purposes of uh, fixing the the international economy and ensuring that he gets – or maximizing his likelihood of getting reelected in 2020, uh, he has an interest in cutting some sort of deal with the Chinese. The question you have to ask yourself is whether or not this is temporary or not. And it seems to me that the United States and China are now engaged in an intense, not only security competition, but economic competition. Uh, People in Silicon Valley, people in the high-tech industries in this country view the Chinese as a mortal enemy. Uh, They're no different than people in the Pentagon. And that's in large part because the Chinese have made it clear that they want to dominate on the cutting edge of new technologies. There's this famous document they put out called China 2025, which really spooked the American uh, technological community. And they do not want to let China dominate. They want the United States to dominate. So we're in a long-term economic competition as well as military competition with China. The question is whether or not we can work out some sort of modus vivendi, right, where we continue to trade and we still – Uh, are able to keep the international economy in pretty good shape. And as you point out, that's in Trump's interest for purposes of getting elected in 2020, re-elected. 
I'm talking with John Mersheimer, professor of political science at the University of Chicago, and his piece today in the New York Times is Iran is rushing to build a nuclear weapon and Trump can't stop it. Um, I wanted to play one more clip from the Democratic debates, and this one is about the authorization of military force. Donald Trump came into office, uh, you know, talking about Iraq was a stupid war, I'm not going to get involved in things, and um, then he has been pretty belligerent and scared the bejesus out of people about Iran and Venezuela and North Korea. And here is a clip of uh, Senator Biden, I believe. We cannot go it alone in terms of dealing with terrorism. So I'd eliminate the, the, uh, the, the, the act that allowed us to go into war and not the AUMF and make sure that it could only be used for what its intended was, what its intent was, and that is to go after terrorists, but never do it alone. That's why we have to repair our alliances. We put together 65 countries to make sure we dealt with ISIS in Iraq and other places. That's what I would do. That's what I have done. And I know how to do it. Senator Sanders, 30 but seconds. One of, the differences, one of the differences that Joe and I have in our record is Joe voted for that war. I helped lead the opposition to that war, which is a total disaster. Second of all, I helped lead the effort for the first time to utilize the War Powers Act to get the United States out of the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen, which is the most horrific humanitarian disaster on earth. And thirdly, let me be very clear, I will do everything I can to prevent a war with Iran, which would be far worse than disastrous war with Senator Iraq. Sanders. Do you think we'll come into the new administration or whatever the next administration is with a different idea about how to use military force? I, I think we're already there, Jerome. I, I think that it started in the second George W. Bush administration when it was clear that Iraq and Afghanistan were disasters. And here I'm talking about 2005. And that's only been reinforced with the passage of time. And you want to remember that Donald Trump got elected, as you pointed out, on the platform that we were going to get out of the forever wars and there were not going to be any new wars. Now, he's not done a great job on that front. But nevertheless, you can see that the pressure on him not to start another war is really terrific. And this is reflected when he decided to call back the forces and not attack Iran uh, two weeks ago. John Mersheimer is professor of political science at the University of Chicago. You can read his piece in the New York Times. Iran is rushing to build a nuclear weapon and Trump can't stop it. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about what's happening with Iran and North Korea and our global alliances. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we are going to talk with uh, World Worldview's Food, Health, and Culture contributor, Monica Ang. She'll chat with former farmer and food insiders about how we can get access to affordable, healthy food. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Worldview's food, health, and culture contributor Monica Eng joins us as she does every week for our Food Monday segment. Today she chats with author and Michigan State adjunct professor Kevin Walker. He argues that our drive to make food cheaper has wrecked havoc on the environment, worker rights, and our health. In his book, The Grand Food Bargain and the Mindless Drive for More, the former farmer and food insider uses stories from around the world to illustrate lessons for our current food system. Thanks so much, Professor Walker. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So tell me, how did you decide that it was time to write this book that kind of exposes where we are in the food system today and how things have gone so disastrously wrong with, in some ways, good intentions? Well... I grew up on a farm, and I've worked in most aspects of the food system, and as time has passed and I gained experience as to how we are able to increase our availability of food, and I could see those benefits that came from that, I also paid more attention to what were the other things that was happening, such as how food was changing us and how in some ways those changes were things that were not in our favor, that they worked against us. And yet, we continue to move full speed ahead. Uh, We weren't bothering to ask ourselves, where are we going and what does it mean? And I become more and more concerned, especially when you begin to consider that food plays a role in our lives that has never been neutral. And just as past generations brought us abundance, our actions are shaping the lives of our children and those who will follow afterwards. And that prompted me to write the book. Okay, so, I mean, to play devil's advocate, so we, we've gotten to a point where people are spending a smaller percentage of their disposable income on food than, you know, possibly in any other part of history. Isn't that great that everyone's got plenty of food to eat and it's not that expensive? What are some of the downsides of this? Well, the obvious one is our own health. You know, if we compare ourselves to our peer countries, we're near the top in terms of overall wealth but we're at the bottom in terms of health. We eat more food, we spend less on food, but we spend more on health care. And when it comes to chronic food-related diseases like obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, we're in last place. Another way to look at the costs that are happening to us is to look at the food system. It's now become a primary contributor of pollutants in streams and waterways and heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere. It's a major user of our fossil energy. And there's still what I would say are are less visible costs. For example, because of the way we now produce and approach food, it has favored larger farms and food businesses, which over time has helped hollow out rural America that's led to fewer economic opportunities and viable communities, including schools and hospitals. I think you and I have been to a ton of conferences looking at the food system, and sometimes they're with people who really just favor organic and local. And a lot of times I've been at conferences where I've been on panels with proponents of industrial agriculture. And as they've heard me talk about some of these downsides of providing, you know, this really efficient, inexpensive, convenient product— They say, you know what, if the consumer out there asked us to create purple and blue polka dotted uh, beef with a pink bow on it, that's what we would deliver. In the end, every survey that we see basically says we want it cheap and we want it convenient. Can we blame the farmer for this? 
You know, it works both ways. I call it the grand food bargain because, like any bargain, there are two sides to it. So from our side as consumers, what we wanted was more food for less effort. And on the other side, as it relates to producers, what they did was geared up to set about to produce more and more food in exchange for greater profits. So when we talk about what is happening, there's ownership in it that goes both ways. And that's an important element to keep in mind as we talk about where we go from there. Because in one way, we can look at the food system and say, you know, we're the executive producers, we consumers. We are the ones that put up the money. And uh, like executive producers of a big movie production, it doesn't happen without us. But there's another way to look at it, and that is that we hold a spot in the food system that can convert calories that are produced into money. And so from that standpoint, George Orwell would say, well, we're a bag for putting food into. And because of that, what the food system is set up to do is to produce more and more calories and then to convert those calories into dollars. So our role within the food system from that standpoint is no different than shoveling more feed in front of cattle or piling more fertilizer over nitrogen. So even though we are spending this very low percentage of our disposable income on food, when I talk at, again, events that are in favor of more responsible agriculture, and I say that, you know, we would end up paying a price that reflects the true price of producing this stuff responsibly, I'm told that it's elitist and that low-income people would not be able to afford this and that this is just a luxury for the upper middle classes. What do you say to that? Well, it's an important topic that I take on in the book. So let me take it down in parts. First of all, what you're saying is absolutely true. If you look at the cost of calories and what it takes to produce those, it can be less than 10 cents for every dollar that we spend on food. And so most of what we spend on food is not for the energy that we need to stay alive, but it's for other added conveniences and things like that. But the second part is that the food system that we have set up was established in order to increase the availability of food, which is different than saying we have a food system that provides equal access to food. Because what we have says if we have money, we have access to food. And if we want more food, we bring more money. Whereas those who don't have that access to food, they can see the ready availability that's out there. They can walk into the same stores that we can. They can see the same restaurants that we can. What they don't have is the access to it. And so that became the impetus to set up some programs, such as the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, what we also know as food stamps, to bridge that gap. But what has happened over time is that as our economy has changed, we have not kept up with the ability of people to have access. And so what has occurred is those who need the most access find themselves in jobs that they cannot earn what they need to in terms of a livable wage in order to be able to participate with it. Now, there's another side that comes along with that, and that is, in a way, that kind of favors continuing how we are approaching food. Because by subsidizing through SNAP or other programs to provide them access to food, 
What we are also doing is saying, from a business standpoint, it really doesn't make any difference where the money is coming from as long as the money is flowing in. Some of these large food companies that are in favor of this really have no incentive to change it. Neither do some of the politicians who can build their political capital or leverage to stay in office to continue to offer that. So what we have nowadays is more of a structural challenge, and that structural challenge is how do we move those who don't have access into better paying opportunities and livable wages so that they can have that access? listening to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5, and today I'm talking to author Kevin Walker about his book, The Grand Food Bargain. So now you're at Michigan State University, but that's a land-grant institution, correct? Correct, it is. I find that a lot of land-grant institutions, when they teach agriculture, it's often the kind of agriculture that you're saying is ultimately going to be destructive to the environment. Uh, How is your message received there, and is there pushback? Well, that's an insightful question because, you know, land-grant institutions were set up in order to increase the productivity and to have more food that were available. And the operating model behind that does just that. So we set up very specific disciplines to study on how particular diseases are arresting the the yields that we might want in something, and we try to solve that. When I came to Michigan State University, one of the things that we tried to do was bring together a collection of these different experts from all of these food-related areas. And instead of talking about how do we boost productivity, talk about the challenges that cut through. How do we relate obesity on one end to our use of fossil energy on the other end? That cuts horizontally across different disciplines. What I found in that experience was that there was a lot of enthusiasm to talk about it. And we had a lot of interchange between somebody who came at it from a pediatric standpoint versus somebody who came at it from a biofuel standpoint. And that engaged a lot. But the challenge was that universities as a whole, land-grant universities in particular, um, they have to follow the money, and they have to raise that, those research dollars to be able to do that. And so what stopped us from going farther was that the money that is out there that would incentivize that cross-fertilization across disciplines was just not there. And in the end, we ended up having to go back to our particular disciplines and specialties and continue along that way. So the challenge is, is yes, universities need to change their focus on how they approach this. But the other challenge is that we as a society have also lost our focus on what we expect from science and technology. Because at one time, science and technology was there to increase our overall understanding. And then from that understanding, we could then have more applied applications. Since then, we begin to look at science and technology as what does it do to make my life better at this moment. And when we do that, we lose the valuable role of what science is all about. You've probably heard this a million times. If we don't use the latest in science and technology, if we don't plant from, what is it, fence row to fence row, Um, We're not going to be able to feed 9 billion people. 
Do you buy that argument? No, not at all. As I write in the book, it's not who has used that argument, it's who has not used that argument. It's an attractive argument, especially if you believe that food carries real importance and that people need food. And so we're all drawn into it at one point. But if you go back and look and see what is happening, we're not lacking for food that's out there. What we're lacking for is how do we distribute it and get it into the hands of those who need it. Until we can do an about face and realize that, we'll be drawn into that argument and never really get to it. Because right now, for example, in the United States, we produce twice the calories of what the individual person needs in order to function and live an active life. That doesn't address where we don't have food. And as long as we continue to hold on to that, there won't be the emphasis that we need to rethink how we approach food and to do it differently. Okay, last question. A lot of this can seem kind of dreary. What is the most powerful and effective thing you would tell the consumer to do who really wants to try to turn this around? I would say never let the blessing of food become the burden of food. First of all, stop wasting food. Second of all, I would say to begin to look at how they could bring in more whole grains, more whole fruits, more nuts and seeds, and vegetables into their diets. I would say next thing is to think about how they relate to meat. You know, we consume twice the amount of meat that's recommended, and we do it in a way that shows very little gratitude for where that meat comes from and the importance that that carries within it. The way things are set up right now is that you've got convenience, you've got price, and you've got nutrition. And most of us go for the convenience and the price and not the nutrition. But the nutrition part can be some of the most rewarding part because what we find out is that we're not drawn to how the continued push for us to consume more and more calories. We're not having to go within the center aisles of grocery store and we've opened up a whole possibility of being able to experience new tastes and new flavors and to go in a different direction. Well, Professor Kevin D. Walker, the author of The Grand Food Bargain and The Mindless Drive for More, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with Mexico's new consul general in Chicago about what role they play for their citizens who get detained by the U.S. government. So that'll be tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine and Jenny Friedland for production assistance. And thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.